Section 12 of The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of Samuel Johnson, Volume 4 by James Boswell, Section 12. One day, having spoken very freely of those who were then in power, he said to me, between ourselves sir i do not like to give opposition the satisfaction of knowing how much i disapprove of the ministry and when i mentioned that mr burke had boasted how quiet the nation was in george the second's reign when whigs were in power compared with the present reign when tories governed why sir said he you are to consider that tories having more reverence for government will not oppose with the same violence as Whigs, who being unrestrained by that principle will oppose by any means this month he lost not only mr thrale but another friend mr william strawn junior printer the eldest son of his old and constant friend printed to his majesty to mrs strawn dear madam the grief which i feel for the loss of a very kind friend is sufficient to make me know how much you suffer by the death of an amiable son a man of whom i think it may truly be said that no one knew him who does not lament him i look upon myself as having a friend another friend taken from me comfort dear madam i would give you if i could but I know how little the forms of consolation can avail. Let me, however, counsel you not to waste your health in unprofitable sorrow, but go to Bath and endeavour to prolong your own life. But when we have all done all that we can, one friend must, in time, lose the other. I am, dear madam, your most humble servant, Samuel Johnson, April twenty-third, 1781. On Tuesday, May the 8th, I had the pleasure of again dining with him and Mr. Wilkes at Mr. Dilly's. Footnote. Miss Burney wrote in May, Dr. Johnson was charming both in spirits and humour. I really think he grows gayer and gayer daily, and more ductile and pleasant in june she wrote i found him in admirable good humour and our journey to streatham was extremely pleasant i thanked him for the last batch of his poets and we talked them over almost all the way beatty a week or two later wrote johnson grows in grace as he grows in years he not only has better health and a fresher complexion than ever he had before at least since i knew him but he has contracted a gentleness of manner which pleases everybody wilkes was by this time city chamberlain i think i see him at this moment said rogers walking through the crowded streets of the city as chamberlain on his way to guildhall in a scarlet coat, military boots, 
and a bag wig the hackney coachman in vain calling out to him a coach your honour end of footnote no negotiation was now required to bring them together for johnson was so well satisfied with the former interview that he was very glad to meet wilkes again who was this day seated between dr beattie and dr johnson between truth and reason as general paoli said when i told him of it wilkes i have been thinking dr johnson that there should be a bill brought into parliament that the controverted elections for scotland should be tried in that country at their own abbey of holyrood house and not here for the consequence of trying them here is that we have an inundation of scotchmen who come up and never go back again now here is boswell who has come up upon the election for his own county which will not last a fortnight johnson nay sir i see no reason why they should be tried at all for you know one scotchman is as good as another Wilkes, pray boswell how much may be got in a year by an advocate at the scotch bar boswell i believe two thousand pounds Wilkes, how can it be possible to spend that money in scotland johnson why sir the money may be spent in england but there is a harder question if one man in scotland gets possession of two thousand pounds what remains for all the rest of the nation wilkes you know in the last war the immense booty which Turo carried off by the complete plunder of seven scotch isles he re-embarked with three and sixpence Turo in the winter of seventeen fifty nine to sixty with a small squadron made descents upon some of the hebrides and on the northeastern coast of ireland in a sea-fight off ireland he was killed and his ships were taken horace walpole says that in the alarm raised by him in ireland the bankers there stopped payment End of footnote. here again johnson and wilkes joined in extravagant sport of raillery upon the supposed poverty of scotland which dr beattie and i did not think it worth our while to dispute the subject of quotation being introduced mr wilkes censured it as pedantry footnote some for renown on scraps of learning dote and think they grow immortal as they quote young's love of fame satire one cumberland says that mr dilly speaking of the profusion of quotations which some writers affectedly make use of observed that he knew a presbyterian parson who for eighteen pence would furnish any pamphleteer with as many scraps of greek and latin as would pass him off for an accomplished classic End of footnote. johnson no sir it is a good thing there is a community of mind in it classical quotation is the parole of literary men all over the world Wilkes. upon the continent they all quote the vulgate bible shakespeare is chiefly quoted here and we quote also 
Pope, Prior, Butler, Waller, and sometimes Cowley. Footnote. Cowley was quite out of fashion. Richardson wrote more than thirty years earlier, I wonder Cowley is so absolutely neglected. Pope, a dozen years or so before Richardson, asked, Who now reads Cowley? If he pleases yet, his moral pleases, not his pointed wit. Imitations of Horace, Epistle 2, Book 1, line 75, end footnote. We talked of letter-writing. Johnson. It has now become so much the fashion to publish letters that in order to avoid it I put as little into mine as I can. Boswell. Do what you will, sir, you cannot avoid it. Should you even write as ill as you can, your letters will be published as curiosities. Behold a miracle instead of wit see two dull lines with stanhope's pencil writ footnote there was a club held at the king's head in pall mall that arrogantly called itself the world lord stanhope now lord chesterfield was a member epigrams were proposed to be written on the glasses by each member after dinner once, when Dr. Young was invited thither, the doctor would have declined writing because he had no diamond. Lord Stanhope lent him his, and he wrote immediately, Accept a miracle, etc. Dr. Matty assigns the lines to Pope, and lays the scene at Lord Cobham's. Spence, however, gives Young himself as his authority. End of footnote. He gave us an entertaining account of Bet Flint, a woman of the town, who, with some eccentric talents and much effrontery, forced herself upon his acquaintance. Footnote. August 1778. I wonder, said Mrs. Thrale, you bear with my nonsense. No, madam, you never talk nonsense. You have as much sense and more wit than any woman I know. Oh, cried Mrs. Thrale, blushing, it is my turn to go under the table this morning, Miss Burney. And yet, continued the doctor, with the most comical look, I have known all the wits, from Mrs. Montague down to Bet Flint. Bet Flint, cried Mrs. Thrale, pray who is she? Oh, a fine character, madam. She was habitually a slut and a drunkard and occasionally a thief and a harlot. Mrs. Williams, he added, did not love Bet Flint, but Bet Flint made herself very easy about that. End of footnote. Bet, said he, wrote her own life in verse, which she brought to me, wishing that I would furnish her with a preface to it. Footnote. Johnson, whose memory was wonderfully retentive, remembered the first four lines of this curious production, which had been communicated to me by a young lady of his acquaintance. When first I drew my vital breath, a little minikin I came upon earth, and then I came from a dark abode into this gay and gaudy world. Boswell. End of footnote. Laughing. 
i used to say of her that she was generally slut and drunkard occasionally whore and thief she had however genteel lodgings a spinet on which she played and a boy that walked before her chair poor bet was taken up on a charge of stealing a counterpane and tried at the old bailey chief justice blank who loved a wench summed up favourably and she was acquitted footnote the sessional reports of the old bailey trials for seventeen fifty eight contain a report of the trial the chief justice willis was in the commission but according to the report it was before the recorder that bet flint was tried it may easily be however that either the reporter or the printer has blundered it is only by the characters asterisk and double dagger that the trials before the chief justice and the recorder are distinguished bet had stolen not only the counterpane but five other articles the prosecutrix could not prove that the articles were hers and not a captain's whose servant she said she had been and who was now abroad on this ground the prisoner was acquitted of chief justice willis horace walpole writes he was not wont to disguise any of his passions that for gaming was notorious for women unbounded he relates an anecdote of his wit and licentiousness he had been johnson's schoolfellow End of footnote. after which bet said with a gay and satisfied air now that the counterpane is my own i shall make a petticoat of it talking of oratory mr wilkes described it as accompanied with all the charms of poetical expression johnson no sir oratory is the power of beating down your adversary's arguments and putting better in their place wilkes but this does not move the passions johnson he must be a weak man who is to be so moved wilkes naming a celebrated orator amidst all the brilliancy of blank's imagination and the exuberance of his wit there is a strange want of taste footnote burke is meant see ante volume two page one three one where johnson said that burke spoke too familiarly and post may the fifteenth seventeen eighty four where he said that when burke lets himself down to jocularity he is in the kennel End of footnote. it was observed of opelus's venus that her flesh seemed as if she had been nourished by roses his oratory would sometimes make one suspect that he eats potatoes and drinks whisky footnote wilkes imperfectly recalled to mind the following passage in plutarch greek euphrano ton taesia tonaiato to pahasiu parebale legon tomen ekainu roda bebrokene tora eato kreaboea euphrano comparing his own theseus with pahasius's 
said that Bahasius's had fed on roses, but his on beef. End of footnote. Mr. Wilkes observed how tenacious we are of forms in this country, and gave as an instance the vote of the House of Commons for remitting money to pay the army in America in Portugal pieces, when in reality the remittance is made not in Portugal money, but in our own specie. Footnote. Portugal, receiving from Brazil more gold than it needed for home uses, shipped a large quantity to England, it was said, though probably with exaggeration, that the weekly packet-boat from Lisbon brought one week with another more than fifty thousand pounds in gold to England. Portugal pieces were current in our colonies, and no doubt were commonly sent to them from London. It was natural, therefore, that they should be selected for this legal fiction. End of footnote. Johnson is there not a law sir against exporting the current coin of the realm wilkes yes sir but might not the house of commons in case of real evident necessity order our own current coin to be sent into our own colonies here johnson with that quickness of recollection which distinguished him so eminently gave the middlesex patriot an admirable retort upon his own ground sure sir you don't think a resolution of the house of commons equal to the law of the land wilkes at once perceiving the application god forbid sir to hear what had been treated with such violence in the false alarm now turned into pleasant repartee was extremely agreeable Johnson went on. Locke observes well that a prohibition to export the current coin is impolitic. For when the balance of trade happens to be against a state, the current coin must be exported. Footnote. Whenever the whole of our foreign trade and consumption exceeds our exportation of commodities, our money must go to pay our debts so contracted whether melted or not melted down. If the law makes the exportation of our coin penal, it will be melted down. If it leaves the exportation of our coin free, as in Holland, it will be carried out in specie. One way or other, go it must, as we see in Spain. Laws made against exportation of money or bullion will be all in vain restraint or liberty in that matter makes no country rich or poor End of footnote. mr beauclerc's great library was this season sold in london by auction footnote. november the fourteenth seventeen seventy nine mr beauclerc has built a library in great russell street that reaches halfway to highgate everybody goes to see it it has put the museum's nose quite out of joint. It contained upwards of 30,000 volumes, and the sale extended over 50 days. Two days' sale were given to the works on divinity, including, in the words of the catalogue, heterodox et increduli, 
Angler freethinkers and their opponents. Dr. Johnson, his friends and his critics, page three one five. It sold for five thousand and eleven pounds. Wilkes's own library, a large one, had been sold in seventeen sixty four in a five days sale, as is shown by the auctioneer's catalogue, which is in the Bodleian. End of footnote. Mr. Wilkes said he wondered to find in it such a numerous collection of sermons, seeming to think it strange that a gentleman of Mr. Beauclerc's character in the gay world should have chosen to have many compositions of that kind. Johnson, my sir, you are to consider that sermons make a considerable branch of English literature. Footnote. Our own language has, from the Reformation to the present time, been chiefly dignified and adorned by the works of our divines, who, considered as commentators, controvertists, or preachers, have undoubtedly left all other nations far behind them. End of footnote. So that a library must be very imperfect if it has not a numerous collection of sermons. Footnote. Mr. Wilkes probably did not know that there is in an English sermon the most comprehensive and lively account of that entertaining faculty for which he himself is so much admired. It is in Dr. Barrow's first volume and fourteenth sermon, Against Foolish Talking and Jesting. My old acquaintance, the late Corbin Morris, in his ingenious essay on wit, humour and ridicule, calls it a profuse description of wit. But I do not see how it could be curtailed without leaving out some good circumstance of discrimination. As it is not generally known, and may perhaps dispose some to read sermons, from which they may receive real advantage while looking only for entertainment, I shall here subjoin it. But first, says the learned preacher, it may be demanded what the thing we speak of is, or what this facetiousness, or wit as he calls it before, doth import, to which questions I might reply, as Democritus did to him that asked the definition of a man, tis that which we all see and know. Any one better apprehends what it is by acquaintance than I can inform him by description. It is indeed a thing so versatile and multiform, appearing in so many shapes, so many postures, so many garbs, so variously apprehended by several eyes and judgments, that it seemeth no less hard to settle a clear and certain notion thereof than to make a portrait of Proteus, or to define the figure of the fleeting air. Sometimes it lieth in pat allusion to a known story, or in seasonable application of a trivial saying, or in forging an apposite tale. Sometimes it playeth in words and phrases, taking advantage from the ambiguity of their sense or the affinity of their sound. Sometimes it is wrapped in a dress of humorous expression. Sometimes it lurketh under an odd similitude. Sometimes it is lodged in a sly question, in a smart answer, in a quirkish reason. 
in a shrewd intimation in cunningly diverting or cleverly retorting an objection sometimes it is couched in a bold scheme of speech in a tart irony in a lusty hyperbole in a startling metaphor in a plausible reconciling of contradictions or in acute nonsense sometimes a cynical representation of persons or things a counterfeit speech a mimical look or gesture passeth for it sometimes an affected simplicity sometimes a presumptuous bluntness giveth it being sometimes it riseth only from a lucky hitting upon what is strange sometimes from a crafty resting obvious matter to the purpose often it consisteth in one knows not what and springeth up one can hardly tell how its ways are unaccountable and inexplicable being answerable to the numberless rovings of fancy and windings of language it is in short a manner of speaking out of the simple and plain way such as reason teacheth and proveth things by which by a pretty surprising uncouthness in conceit or expression doth affect and amuse the fancy stirring in it some wonder and breeding some delight thereto it raiseth admiration as signifying a nimble sagacity of apprehension a special felicity of invention a vivacity of spirit and a reach of wit more than vulgar it seeming to argue a rare quickness of parts that one can fetch in remote conceits applicable a notable skill that he can dexterously accommodate them to the purpose before him together with a lively briskness of humour not apt to dap those sportful flashes of imagination whence in aristotle such persons are termed greek hepidextioi dexterous men and greek eustrophoi men of facile or versatile manners who can easily turn themselves to all things or turn all things to themselves it also procureth delight by gratifying curiosity with its rareness as semblance of difficulty as monsters not for their beauty but their rarity as juggling tricks not for their use but their abstruseness are beheld with pleasure by diverting the mind from its road of serious thoughts by instilling gaiety and airiness of spirit by provoking to such dispositions of spirit in way of emulation or complacence and by seasoning matters otherwise distasteful or insipid with an unusual and thence grateful tang puzzle morris's essay was published in seventeen forty four hume wrote pray do you not think that a proper dedication may atone for what is objectionable in my dialogues i am become much of my friend corbin morris's mind who says that he writes all his books for the sake of the dedications End of footnote. and in all collections sir the desire of augmenting it grows stronger in proportion to the advance in acquisition as motion is accelerated by the continuance of the impetus besides sir looking at mr wilkes with a placid but significant smile 
a man may collect sermons with intention of making himself better by them i hope mr beauclerc intended that some time or other that should be the case with him mr wilkes said to me loud enough for dr johnson to hear dr johnson should make me a present of his lives of the poets as i am a poor patriot who cannot afford to buy them johnson seemed to take no notice of this hint but in a little while he called to mr dilly pray sir be so good as to send a set of my lives to mr wilkes with my compliments this was accordingly done and mr wilkes paid dr johnson a visit was courteously received and sat with him a long time the company gradually dropped away mr dilly himself was called downstairs upon business i left the room for some time when i returned i was struck with observing dr samuel johnson and john wilkes esq literally tete-a-tete for they were reclined upon their chairs with their heads leaning almost close to each other and talking earnestly in a kind of confidential whisper of the personal quarrel between george the second and the king of prussia Footnote. the quarrel arose from the destruction by george the second of george the first's will the king of prussia frederick the great was george the first's grandson vague rumours spoke of a large legacy to the queen of prussia frederick's mother of that bequest demands were afterwards said to have been frequently and roughly made by her son the great king of prussia between whom and his uncle subsisted much inveteracy End of footnote. such a scene of perfectly easy sociality between two such opponents in the war of political controversy as that which i now beheld would have been an excellent subject for a picture it presented to my mind the happy days which are foretold in scripture when the lion shall lie down with the kid Footnote. when i mentioned this to the bishop of killaloe with the goat said his lordship such however is the engaging politeness and pleasantry of mr wilkes and such the social good humour of the bishop that when they dined together at mr dilly's where i also was they were mutually agreeable boswell it was not the lion but the leopard that shall lie down with the kid End of footnote. End of section twelve.